Regular listeners will remember my guest, Samuel McClure Taylor. Uh, he is the co-founder of the Backroom Shakespeare Project here in Chicago, but also now in New York, and has written My Life with the Shakespeare Cult, which, if you've been directed by me in the last three or four years, chances are you receive that book as an opening night gift. I so love the swagger and the insight of My Life with the Shakespeare Cult, and Sam has followed that up now with a sequel, two volumes of which comprise blueprints for a Shakespeare cult. You too can make a Shakespeare cult in your own living room. Is that the goal here, Sam? I mean, ideally in a bar, but yeah. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast number 651, Shakespeare Cult Blueprints. Samuel Taylor is one of the founders of the Backroom Shakespeare Project, the author of My Life with the Shakespeare Cult, and now the two-volume follow-up, Blueprints for a Shakespeare Cult, which sets out to explain how you too can embrace and replicate the work of the Backroom Shakespeare Project in your own city or country. You can reserve your very own copy of Blueprints for a Shakespeare Cult right now by going to kickstarter.com and searching for Blueprints for a Shakespeare Cult. You'll be reserving your very own copy and you'll be ensuring that Sam's Kickstarter campaign gets funded. But if you need a little more persuasion, continue listening as Sam and I discuss the Backroom Shakespeare Project's origins and what he hopes his new book will accomplish. One of the things that I believe is that in order to tear down all the modern crap that, that has accumulated around Shakespeare and build something more interesting, really you only need a blueprint and a hammer. The book is the blueprint and your heart is the hammer. Boy, is that on the cover? Is that on the poster? The blue- <laughs> Nah, man, that's in the intro though. <laughs> I like that sentence a lot. As you should. It's a good sentence. Um, Am I right that the impulse for backroom shakes and the cult to which you are now um, printing the blueprints was born of of a desire to more authentically recreate the situation in which Shakespeare's plays were first performed? Yes, I think there were twin reasons why we started. Um, And that was, I think, one that was very interesting to us and rapidly took over. But the real, the real honest-to-goodness opening reason why we started this at all was because we were bored and mystified at why Shakespeare was so often so awful. When so many people work their whole lives to be good at it, and then you show up on stage and it's like, well, that was fine. Which is frankly most, like, it is most like most of the professional Shakespeare that I've been a part of. Yeah. It's like a cast full of people with an extraordinary amount of expertise, and it just doesn't translate, and it's bad. And, and, and why do you think that is? Why, why do you think we have boring Shakespeare? I think it's because those plays don't fit in modern theaters. Mm. Um, and this is sort of one of the central metaphors that I have, I have lived with for a long time, is that it's a square peg round hole problem. Yeah. Like you, you have a play that was designed for a certain kind of atmosphere and process and is beautifully written for that kind of atmosphere and process. And then you take it at 400 years into the future yeah. <laughs> into, into a landscape that the playwright could not possibly have imagined. And you do this without any acknowledgement that you've changed the fundamental relationship between the audience and the play, between the play and the actors, between the actors and the audience. You do all that, and you put it in a, in a dark room uh, with a bunch of people 
and like they take naps yeah. and that's ex that's exactly what I would expect to happen um, and I think if you're if you want to do a modern adaptation of Shakespeare by all means use all the toys you want but the but to do that without acknowledging the distance that you that you have created between the play and how it was intended to be is like a, a huge hazard and causes an enormous blind spot that that is just baffling to me that it goes so unaddressed so the idea was to um, was to sort of reach past the play that was written to the play that was intended and to try to do that right. um, and the play that was intended you know there's a lot of people who do original practices who are also among my heroes and great I don't mean to badmouth them in any way but we are doing something slightly different um, which is to say that the original practices people sort of it's a, it's an attempt to kind of time travel back to the sort of puffy shirted globe circa 1602 only like safer and more comfortable right. um, and what we are doing is different which is to say what were the priorities of that playhouse what was the audience experience like and how can we create that today now right. so the name that we've really given that is uh, twofold I call it old old school Shakespeare um, and I also call it Playhouse Shakespeare um, and one is sort of a one is streetwear old school is sort of what I think the people who actually do this kind of work which are now sort of a national community I think that's what they actually call it uh -huh. um, the people who write articles about it um, which are also uh, sort of proliferating rapidly um, in academia they call it Playhouse which is uh, fun to have fun to have two outfits interesting of those two terms i prefer playhouse and i'm i'm not 100 percent sure i understand why i prefer old school <laughs> uh see i would call i would call something like chicago shakes old school because they're doing it the old-fashioned way you know with a director and designers that's why i don't care for your old school designation can i tell you what i like about the term old school for yes. this kind of work i like that it references the fact it sort of references that there's an older way of doing it that is better but it is also a conspicuously new word. <laughs> it is a conspicuously non-Shakespearean word. Right. That's right. And I think that's the right relationship to me. Yeah, that's is right. like, it, we are doing it the old way, and also we will poke you in the eye with new stuff. With new stuff. Um, but, so to be clear, mm -hmm. so to be clear, you, um, you, you, not, you, you, you're doing this thing that is trying to be respectful to the original text without being original practices. Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, and, and also, to be clear, you are so not uh, drunk Shakespeare or, or shit-faced Shakespeare. Yeah, super not. Um, the idea there is to create a comedy event, and, and in those, my understanding of those events, anyway, is that they thrive on a kind of irreverent attitude towards their source material. Um, and we certainly have a, a certain amount of that, but there's like a steel backbone underneath it that is, that is the faith that the plays are good and they are worth doing. Um, and in fact, the, the irreverence that we, that we carry towards it is a kind of... It is a different kind of reverence and service, which is which is to say that like I really believe the plays are better when you have a looser attitude towards the text, um, and it is in a genuine attempt to fulfill that promise that that we take departures from the text and that we throw f bombs into the middle of the text and we, you know, are pretty rough <laughs> with it, but it is it is out of devotion and love. And you said earlier that Shakespeare's plays weren't designed to, or you used the word design, and, 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 and I was thinking, he, he didn't design his plays at all, except dramaturgically. You know, he wrote for his actors, he wrote for this theater, he wrote for his time, he wrote to not get arrested, you know, <laughs> he, you know he wrote with a bunch of very specific, he was absolutely 
absolutely a playwright of his time and moment. And to not remember that, I think, does him a disservice. I mean, I think all playwriting is an act that is fundamentally rooted in the theater for which it is intended. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think Shakespeare wrote really intelligently, as did a lot of playwrights of that time, for a really specific environment. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you've got all these inductions before plays, like in Taming of the Shrew, you've got all these things where audience members are, are sort of being quite riotous um, and engaging with the play in a way that would get you thrown out of a theater these days. Yeah. All, like every single play within a play written in those in that time period that I have encountered is punctuated by audience commentary yeah. and suggests a radically different relationship yeah. to it than what you might write if you were writing that now. Like if yeah. you were writing that now and somebody started, and Hamlet started commenting on the play, the, what the, the Hamlet does in the play, yeah. like of course it's inappropriate. But if you were to do that now, it would be so wildly out of character and out of control that you would get thrown out of the theater. Yeah. Um, and they don't. And I think that, so, so sort of understanding that, so yes, Shakespeare did not design his plays in that sense at all, in that there was no concept or direction. There was no rehearsal process to say like, oh, can you come downstage left and weep right now while there's a, another beautiful image behind you happening? It's like, that kind of stuff just did not happen. Yeah, right. But um, architecturally, the sort of the dramaturgy of the plays was constructed very carefully and very intentionally around a specific kind of process. And it turns out that process is a lot easier and more fun. <laughs> and it winds up producing a lot of the time better Shakespeare than what you get when you've got lifelong experts for five weeks in a room in rehearsals and then a week and a half of tech and a whole and a years long design process it's like it turns out just a whole lot of that effort is garbage and wasted <laughs> the other thing i love about shakespeare was writing for a specific company of actors writing to their strengths putting into the text reference to their physical descriptions their their physical attributes which 400 years later now we have to justify helena's height or whatever it is yeah, yeah, yeah. in midsummer um uh, uh and you're doing and 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 i think what what i mean i i what I love about that is that, you know, for the Renew Shakespeare Company, that's what I do. It's like, oh, I know Dominic's going to be in this show. He's six foot three. He can play Abraham Lincoln. You know, that's a no-brainer. Um, and it's what you guys do because your company, your casts change. Um, and what it shows is, is the primacy, the importance of the actor to the event, you know, and how that and how the actor changes the event. Yeah, that's the most fundamental difference um, between sort of conventional modern Shakespeare and old school Shakespeare is that in the old school way, um, the actor is the primary negotiator between the play and the audience. Right. Um, and these days, you know, the actor is the last one to the table. Yeah. You, you get hired after all the important decisions that were made, yeah. um, and you slot into a very specific kind of idea about about how the play is going to go. Um, so we've tried to, that's one of the ways in which we're reaching back to, to the original sort of blueprint, is what is the relationship between the actor and the play? And the actors owned the plays. So that's one of the things that we do, and one of the things that I talk about, the, the process of, and how that works specifically, when the, you know, when the rubber hits the road, uh, in the book, Blueprints for a Shakespeare Cult, is, um, is how to have the actors be totally in control of their own text. So if you want to make changes, do it. There's a way to do that that causes good chaos, and there's a way to do that that causes unhelpful chaos. Um, and you know, we've spent almost a decade now learning the difference between the two. 
And so the idea was to write down all those kinds of pieces of advice um, so that you could get better at this faster than I did. Hi, this is Octavius Solis, longtime Bay Area playwright, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? You can see Reduced Shakespeare in your own home by owning your very own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and illustrated by the marvelous Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. We have two performances left of our spring and summer of 2019 tour of the complete works of William Shakespeare Abridged Revised in Lakeside, Ohio on July 18th and in Lake Placid, New York on August 10th. We will have more performance dates starting this fall of 2019, both in the U.S. and in other places, and we'll announce those dates just as soon as we can. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office, venue, and ticket information. And now back to my conversation with Samuel Taylor, the co-founder of the Backroom Shakespeare Project and the author of the Shakespeare Cult Trilogy. I wish I'd brought my copy of My Life with the Shakespeare Cult because it is so highlighted and dog-eared because I have read it so many times and every time I read it, they come across another patch and I go, yes, God damn it, yes, you're right. Um, but several things struck me, even on the first reading, was that you talk about um, uh, Hamlet comes on stage and says, now I am alone. And of course, that's ridiculous, because Shakespeare had no sense of naturalism, no sense of reality. His audiences had no feeling that they were going to come in and be transported to another world. They were always going to be staying right there in that theater. So to, that's an acknowledgment of that. And in Henry V, the prelude, this re- referencing the wooden O of the globe is a reference to the specific playing space that they're in. And any, produ- and any production of Henry V that doesn't change wooden O to describe the theater that we're actually sitting in begins their production with a lie to their audience. Yeah, and that's fine if you want to do that and in a disciplined way that is well-constructed. But if you're, just, if you're just doing what's written because it's written... Um, without acknowledging the difference between what it was written for and how you're doing it. Like, there's just a huge chasm that you're going to constantly fall into. One of the traps that people fall into when they uh, when they take for granted the 20th century's uh, theatrical conventions and apply them to Shakespeare is that you wind up you wind up trying to mesh together what I think of as actualism, which is dealing with what is actual and real, um, with realism, which deals with the representation of reality in a convincing illusion, which are very different, right? So if you're if you're dealing with actualism and you've got Hamlet and Polonius on stage, uh, Polonius says, "Oh yeah, I was an actor once. I played uh, Caesar. Brutus stabbed me." That's a that's an absolutely direct reference to the fact that the actor who did play Polonius did play Caesar, and the actor who played Brutus played Hamlet. So Brutus stabs Caesar to death, and Hamlet, 15 minutes later, stabs Polonius to death. Like that is a joke that pokes at it pokes at the boundary between the play and reality. And realism is so uninterested in poking at that at that um, 
at that boundary. Yeah. It, we, you know, they've got the fourth wall, which is a term that wasn't invented for 200 years after Shakespeare's death. Right. Um, so the idea that we're just going to slot it in there is, t- is, to me, loony. And so you wind up doing all sorts of misguided things. You wind up so like, oh, in order to understand the love story between Romeo and Juliet, you've got to have Juliet be really pretty because, like, things should look how they are. And it's like, <laughs> no, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. What you need is an environment that causes the audience to listen. And when you listen, the plays come alive. And when you watch they don't. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the really unique things about this kind of playhouse style of working is that it is very auditory and it's very action oriented. Um, and so, you know, the book is full of all sorts of pieces of advice that we have learned really the hard way and have s- sort of slowly coalesced into little pieces of advice that are easy to remember, um, such as don't pause before you speak. And there's a few reasons for that. One, the plays are better when they're fast. Two, without a director and a visual language, nobody knows where to look. So that if you have have the next line, but there are four people on stage, and you take a big dramatic pause before your bit, like, newsflash, nobody saw it because they didn't know where to look. (laughs) And you're throwing your other actors under the bus because it looks like they've forgotten their lines. (laughs) Wait, who somebody should be talking? Why is nobody talking? Yeah, sure. So the fix for that is very simple. If you've got a big dramatic pause you need to do uh, for whatever reason, I mean, probably you don't, but if you do, then, like, make a noise and then do it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's it's that kind of advice that um, really... I've, we've watched people learn the same the same lessons over and over again. Yeah. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to distill all of those little pieces of advice into their sort of shortest and most memorable form with a little bit of supporting evidence um, and sort of theory on some of them. So it's, it's, it's great because my life, the first book, My Life with the Shakespeare Cult, is a, like a manifesto. It's a, a cri de coeur. It's a, it's a call to arms of this is what we should be doing. And Blueprints for a Shakespeare Cult, both volumes, is like a how-to. All right, we're motivated. Yes, Sam, you've got us, you've got us all ready to go. Now what? And that's what the Blueprints are doing. Yeah, the, idea, the concept for the two was very different. One was to imitate the kind of conversation that you get into over like maybe too, too many whiskey where you're shouting about Shakespeare late into the night, um, which I was also doing last night at Konax. Shout out to Konax. Um, but it was to, it was to kind of engage with that. There's lots of swear words. There's, like, no apologies whatsoever. Just, like, straight-ahead anger <laughs> and excitement and, like, lots of shouting. Um, Blueprints for a Shakespeare Cult is much more modeled after the kinds of stakeholder meetings that we've had over the years with the project, which are like, all right, we definitely enjoy drinking whiskey and shouting about Shakespeare, but we, but we are in this for years of our lives to be good at it. And so the Blueprints is really modeled after like the coffee dates that follow. All right. <laughs> it's like, all right. Cool. Slightly more sober. <laughs> yeah, more sober. There's a lot less swearing in it, although there's certainly a lot of that still in the interviews. Um, but it's the idea was to, to buckle down and to provide a kind of backbone for, I hope. My hope is that, is that folks nationally can, can use it as a resource in developing what is becoming a whole movement about how to do this. Well, and I know I, I know people who teach Shakespeare, of, including a friend of mine um, uh, who who teaches high school Shakespeare, who is di- dying for a a student version of the books with all the shits and the. Fire.
fire trucks taken out. Are you interested in going there, or can we just we'll just wait for those kids to go into college and then they can do whatever they want? First of all, I think the high school kids can handle it. It's the parents. It's that, the parents. It's absolutely. the parents. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, it would be really fun to do a radio edit where all of the swear words have been edited into Elizabethan versions of swear words. <laughs> because, you know, it's not like the Elizabethans didn't swear. They just had colorful words like scut and clot pole. <laughs> so, you know, if, I would love to, to do a version of that that is totally teachable in high school, but also also pokes, the, uh, pokes people in the eye with the sense of like, oh... All right, you know, you want to do Shakespeare, but you don't want swearing. I'm only going to use words from Shakespeare. Sometimes we get reviews of the complete works of Shakespeare abridged, revised, where they say, "Oh, well, this is hardly appropriate for children." I'm going, "Well, have you seen any real Shakespeare? If anything, we cleaned him up." <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and that's that's part of the fun of it is is discovering that oh, the, like we've been putting Shakespeare in these very conservative churches, um, and it's much more at home when people are cut a little bit looser. And if, and this is the sort of mystery to me is that what those churches of theaters are after is actually, it's more accessible to you in a social environment when you have a beer. Yeah. And when you are, when you are coming as yourself and not as part of a sort of community, silent devotional meditation exercise. And, uh, you know, uh, your shows I've been to a couple of them, and I've been in one. I was in a production of Merchant of Venice, um, playing the Duke and the Prince of Aragon. And my daughter came to that. She was 13 or 14 at the time. And Caitlin Costello, I've talked about her on the podcast before, was like Lucille Ball playing Portia. She was so winning and, and comic and completely transformed that character for me. And I'm so glad that that production was my young teenage daughter's first introduction to The Merchant of Venice because it was absolutely a legit introduction to not only the play, but the way the play can be read and seen. Uh, one of the things that people all over the country doing this kind of work regularly hear from from patrons is that was the first time I understood that play um, and this is a thing that I think outsiders find really difficult to believe or, or hard to understand um, that like it's actually much easier to understand the play when it's done more loose and rough when the actors are in a direct relationship with the audience and when they can see when you're tracking something or not and when they can change when they know you're not tracking it. Yeah. <laughs> so for example, one of my favorite moments of that was Matthew Sherback was playing Touchstone in As You Like It. And he's got this joke about like, I remember when I was a lover, I used to do all these crazy things. And he's like, he's got all these sort of references that are totally out of date. He says like, ah yes, I remember the kissing of my battler. I'm just like, the hell is a battler? And so I would have changed that to something a little more like a modern equivalent. But what Matthew did, which was so much more brilliant, was he just footnoted his own jokes live. Oh. So he said, like, ah, I remember the kissing of my battler, which is like a thing that you hit rugs with to clean them, which struck exactly the right tone for Touchstone that is, like, both friendly and relatable and also, like, a little shitty and arch. <laughs> and pedantic. Yeah. yeah. Academic. Yeah. yeah, which is perfect for the character. And it's yeah. like, because he had the freedom to do that and nobody was looking over his shoulder and nervous, like, there was no nervous director watching being like, oh, I don't know, is that is that the right tone for this production? Is that... Right. He knows if it's the right tone because he's the one in the room 
experiencing that relationship right with the now, audience. Right then. He's yeah. part of the shared experience. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you don't get to do that sort of stuff um, if you rehearse. But there's also a lot of craft that goes into that. There's a lot of like careful thought and attention and experience that goes into knowing when it is appropriate to go off script and to change your language and when it is really not going to do the play a service. So that's some of the language that I'm hoping to bring to folks is some of these conversations that we have about like, uh, we call it equity. So there are times when you need to pay into the play and there are times when you need to spend what the play has earned. Um, and feeling that balance live with the live audience um, is a really incredible thing to get to know and to learn. Um, and we've got sort of now a whole language about how do we think about that and how do we talk about that and what are, what are things that are helpful and what are things that are unhelpful. So that is the kind of thing that I'm hoping will push the movement forward. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Reserve your very own copy of Blueprints for a Shakespeare Cult right now by going to kickstarter.com and searching for Blueprints for a Shakespeare Cult. And you can also order Sam's first book, My Life with a Shakespeare Cult, by going to samuelmtaylor.com and clicking on the Buy the Little Book button. All three volumes are incredibly entertaining and thought-provoking masterclasses. Then send us your manifesto via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener. Thanks, as always, to podcast stakeholder Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and GarageBand. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Bree Landrum, although it might also be Bry Landrum. No reason, it's just random. Thanks to my daughter Daisy Titchener for bleeping out the F word and to the person who suggested I throw in a Daisy fire truck. I'm so sorry I've forgotten where you said it and who you are. Whether you said it in an email or posted it on Facebook or Twitter, if you're listening, please let me know that you were the one so I can thank you properly. Special thanks to Octavio Solis, whose new play, Mother Road, is now having its world premiere at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 651 1954ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. One of the other elements that is central to the backroom shakes and to the cult is uh, is generosity. Generosity to your fellow actors, generosity to the play, generosity to your audience, and also your generosity for doing this podcast and for <laughs> writing these books and spreading the word. Well, thank you. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.